So Nehemiah chapter 13, if you're in a church Bible, is page 408. And I'm going to read it to us. Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonites or Moabites should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense." I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Matani, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds, which I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrants also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in the Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Do not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. 
And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them swear in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah 13 begins on the same day that Nehemiah 12 ends, the the dedication of the wall, the ceremony that we were looking at last week. But then in verse 4, if you look down, the narrative flashes back to events uh, before the dedication of the wall. So now before this, verse 4 begins. Events now which appear to be taken from uh, perhaps Nehemiah's own journal. So you've got from a sort of historical narrative, you now come into all the eyes in the narrative. You notice that. I went, I asked, I did this, I threw out, I beat up, I pull out hair and all that sort of stuff. Here again then, uh, Nehemiah is speaking in the first person, which he hasn't done since chapter 7. I think that's, that's interesting just to note that of itself. I mean, maybe you don't think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that right at the end of the book, what you've got is not a, a kind of chronological fulfillment or final sort of chronological piece, but what you've got is a reflection back from Nehemiah's journal. You've got, a, if you like, a sort of theological or thematic ending. You know, imagine if you, were, um, if you were teaching a lesson at school or preaching a sermon. The final words that you say are really important, aren't they? Probably. So the final words you say are important because that's the thing that's ringing in people's ears as they, as they leave. So it's fascinating, really, that Nehemiah, at the end of his book, does not want to end on the chronology of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, but wants to end with this thematic reflection from his own journal. And it's fascinating there because he doesn't want to end with the, the, the heights of the dedication of the wall, but he wants to end with the sort of the depths of the messiness of his journal about life in the people of God, which I think is just worth uh, chewing on. So here in Nehemiah 13, he gives you uh, five disappointing features of God's people in a rebuilt or at least partially rebuilt Jerusalem. There are traitors who are honored, there's worship that's neglected, there's greed that's indulged, there's lust that's followed, and there's purity that's rejected. And I'm going to quickly run through those and then suggest two applications, uh, and then we'll spend some time praying together. Firstly, then, traitors honored. Tobiah appears again, doesn't he, in verse 8. He, if you remember, was one of Nehemiah's fiercest opponents, along with Sambalat, standing in the way of the rebuilding work, trying to stop it. And now, after a period of time away from Jerusalem, back with Artaxerxes, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem and finds that Tobiah is in a luxury apartment uh, in the temple courts, an apartment which has been set up by removing the grain, wine, and oil tithes from their storage facilities. 
Again, I don't think it's hard to imagine, is it, how much that must have stung for Nehemiah, you know, coming back to find one of his fiercest opponents in the, the swankiest apartment in the center of Jerusalem. A wicked opponent was now honored in the city. And you find out how Nehemiah reacts. Don't you look down at verse 8. I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of our God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I don't know, echoes of Jesus' clearing of the temple, isn't there, here, as Nehemiah throws things around in the temple and cleans it out. So that's um, traitors honored. Next, worship neglected. Worship neglected. You find out in verse 10 that the Levites, who were supposed to be freed up from regular work to maintain temple worship, have been neglected by the people, so much so that you're told that they have fled to their fields, not so much running away from whatever's going on in Jerusalem, but running away in order to find food and to feed themselves. It's worth noting that's in a direct contradiction of the promise that they make in chapter 10. Now, depending on how the chronology works, either that's a breach of a covenant promise they've already made, and someone's trying to chivvy us to sing the next hymn. Um, Either that's a contradiction of the covenant promise they've already made, or they make the covenant promise in order to stop them doing what they have been doing here. The failure of the people to provide for the Levites is a failure to value the worship and sacrifices of the temple. It seemed to no longer captivate the people's hearts or shape their life choices. Instead, the temple had dropped down their priorities. Nehemiah, seemingly in desperation more than anything else, organizes a rotor and sets things in motion, finishing that section in verse 14 with words, I think, almost of frustration, asking God that you might not forget all that he has done in a context of others who are not willing to do their part. Again, it's not hard to find some sympathy for Nehemiah here. He's a guy who has given up uh, the best job in the empire to sacrificially serve God's people, and when he comes back, they can't even organize themselves to keep temple worship going. Um, the proportionally smaller sacrifices of portions and tithes for the priests were apparently too much for the people of God to be interested in, even when Nehemiah is leaving behind uh, the greatness of King Artaxerxes. Thirdly, then, you've got greed indulged. Uh, Also included in their covenant commitments in chapter 10 was a commitment to keep the city closed on the Sabbath day. They're not trying to cut themselves off from trade altogether, but rather the Sabbath laws were there to provide this practical recognition for God's people that they were economically not dependent on trade but dependent on God as their provider. All that though had gone out the window hadn't it and in verse 15 the people are buying and selling with whoever turns up and whenever they come and you get some specifics of the things that they're buying and selling on the Sabbath and Nehemiah confronts them. I confronted look at verse 17 I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? You know, have you guys forgotten? <laughs> have you forgotten why we're in such a mess? This is what was happening before. Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah then takes matters into his own hands, doesn't he? And he starts shutting the gate himself in verse 19, stationing people outside the gate to turn away traders who might come on the Sabbath, threatening almost in sort of comedy fashion, doesn't he, in verse 21, to give them a good kicking if you dare camp outside the wall again and notes that they, uh, that they didn't. I will lay hands on you if you come again, verse 21. Fourthly then, lust followed from verse 23. You find that the people have made all sorts of different uh, marriage alliances with the nations around them. That despite under the old covenant, God's people were supposed to marry inside the covenant community and only outsiders who had first joined the community, community themselves. 
Nehemiah doesn't outline the reasons that this is going on. It may seem harsh to call this uh, lust-led, but I think in the wider context of these books at the end of the Old Testament, that's probably a pretty good description of what's going on. Malachi picks it up in his book, which is a few years later than Nehemiah, and these issues are still uh, alive and well in Israel. And he notes that people in Jerusalem, Jewish men, are divorcing their Jewish wives for younger, hotter, foreign women who are a little bit more exotic. And so he says to them that actually that kind of divorce in order to marry a younger woman is uh, not approved of by God. It's a, a kind of violence, he says. But the, the fruit of this desire um, uh, for marriage means that they just tread on their covenant commitments. And it means that their children don't have a clue of what it means to be uh, the people of God. Can't even speak the language of the people of God, he says in verses 24 and 25. Now, Nehemiah's response to this is the most brutal, isn't it? And uh, he starts pulling out hair. Verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves, pointing out that King Solomon, who in all his great wisdom, was led to fall by this very root uh, of marrying foreign women. Don't think you're stronger or wiser or better than Solomon. Even great Solomon acted treacherously in this way. Now, you might think that's all a bit harsh, and Nehemiah does seem to be increasingly desperate, doesn't he, towards the end of the book. But whatever the verdict is on his specific actions, and whether it's right to beat someone up and pull out their hair, I doubt, but he's absolutely right, isn't he, that these kind of marriage alliances will ruin God's people uh, in the end. The final disappointment, then, is in verses 28 to 31, where purity is rejected. This seems to be the final straw, doesn't it? Sambalat who don't forget to try to kill him in chapter 6, has married, managed to marry his way into the bloodline of the high priest. So Nehemiah chases him away in the words of verse 29 because he's desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. In other words, if it matters to the, uh, to the people who they marry, it matters even more who the priests marry because the priests have an important role within the covenant community and they can't fulfill it if they don't take their personal purity seriously. Now, all of that brings you, doesn't it, to these final short seven-word conclusion to his book, Remember Me, Oh My God, For Good, which is where Nehemiah ends his book. You know, having started the book of Nehemiah with this earnest personal repentance and a passion for the renewal of God's people and this kind of commitment to the rebuilding of the walls, he ends the book having been able to affect the rebuilding of the wall, but really leaving the people's hearts in pretty much the same state as they started out. And he ends his book, really, I think, almost with a sigh rather than a cry of victory. Remember me, he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. I, uh, I look back this week at some notes that I had from preaching this passage uh, in 2006 when we were still in London at the beginning of that year. And at that time, I went on uh, from observations about Nehemiah's disappointments uh, to talking about how new covenant ministry uh, should be different and reasons why church ministry should rightly be expected to be different to this. And I was thinking about it this week and reflecting on it. You know, should we really expect church life to be better than Nehemiah's experience of working with God's people in the Old Testament? You know, should we be rightly expecting a, a higher level of renewal than Nehemiah experienced. You know, should Nehemiah sigh at the end of his book? Is that, 
Is that an old covenant sigh, if you like? Or, or should we be echoing that sigh today in the church? Now, I think there are reasons why you can say that it's slightly different and it's not um, an exact uh, line straight through to today. But maybe I've just become older and more cynical over the last few years. But I wonder if in my previous application passage, I was a little bit too optimistic about church life. Now, I'm not saying that actually just because of my own experience. Let's uh, do some cross-referencing and and find out what the New Testament talks about church life being. So uh, take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I think the sigh at the end of Paul's life is pretty similar uh, to Nehemiah's sigh at the end of his book. Uh, So 2 Timothy 4. I'm going to read a reasonable chunk from verse 9 down to verse 18. So Paul writes this, uh, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. It seems the same in lots of other New Testament letters as well. So jump forward just to the letter of Jude as well and to verse 17. Uh, the book of Jude, I'll try and get you a page number, but if you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. And if you haven't quite got to Revelation, you've not gone far enough. page 1,227, which is a bit difficult because they don't number at the beginning of a letter, do they? Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. seems, doesn't it, that the sighs at the end of the book of Jude and the end of the book of 2 Timothy are similar in some senses to Nehemiah's. So let me suggest two brief applications for us as we uh, finish and come to pray together this evening. The first one is this. Be prepared for disappointments in church life. Now, feel free to try and correct me in question 
say at the end if you'd like to come and talk to me about it at the end. But I, I think given what we've seen, I'm not sure that we should expect church life to be necessarily easier than life in Old Testament Israel. For sure, I think we can hope that church is made up as far as it's possible for us to tell from regenerate believers will be better than a political nation. But still, I think the way that the New Testament expounds these Old Testament passages seems to suggest that the errors of the Old Testament are there as warnings to the New Testament church because it's possible for us to fall into some of the same traps. Now, we have to say that it's uh, impossible for us to answer the why question. You know, God hasn't given us an answer to why. Why messy churches are considered by him to be the best vehicle for displaying his glory and discipling believers. Uh, we don't know why it is, but you can't argue that it is like that, because the New Testament church is always messy. And so you should expect, I think, part of your Christian experience, at least, to be sighing with Nehemiah at some of the disappointments, at sin in the life of the church, at opponents, like we found in uh, Timothy and Jude, at immorality, maybe at half-hearted giving, like we find here in the end of Nehemiah, maybe a slapdash approach to holiness, maybe just disappointments to yourself as we disappoint ourselves. Now, whatever the reason why, and we don't really know, do we? We have to say it's very humbling for us to see that, that for 2,000 years, and now armed with a, a complete scriptures and a history full of Bible teachers, we still cannot manage to run a perfect church. And I suspect that if we have any idea of that, the reason why, God's reason is maybe at least in part to keep us humbly trusting him and not ourselves as we live this side of glory. How does that humility express itself in church life? I think predominantly, like we see in Nehemiah here, it's in prayer, isn't it? Each time he turns his disappointment to the Lord, remember me, O Lord, remember me, O Lord. This is really hard, Lord. This is really difficult. I don't seem to have achieved the things that I'd hoped to achieve when I set out to rebuild the walls. Please remember me. Please don't let all of this work or all this labor be in vain, Lord, please. And so we too, in a messy church life, should also be expressing that to God. as We pray for perseverance because we're going to need that we're going to pray for an immovable commitment to the gospel even when it's hard maybe even when it appears not to be working we want to keep praying don't we for tender hearts we want to keep praying that the lord would strengthen our hands to keep going and keep working that actually he might bring glory to himself we want to pray for ongoing protection from ourselves and from our own sinful desires as well as from others and their sinful desires too so church life is going to be disappointing and we need to be prepared for that and we need to let that drive us to prayer secondly be prepared for disappointments to give way to glory so i was thinking about this this afternoon thinking you know the sigh of where do you hear the sigh of nehemiah most clearly in the new testament where do you hear that echo most loudly in the new testament i wonder whether it's in the closing sentences of the whole bible so if you turn to the very very end of the bible to revelation 22 I think we get some of this uh, here in Revelation 22. Just so that we sort of get the flow of uh, what's going on here. Let me, let me pick it up in verse 12. I'll pick it up in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Now, I, I think this is the Jesus focus at the end of Nehemiah. You know, we're not... Uh, really told whether uh, Nehemiah here is displaying godly grief or just abject frustration. Commentators are slightly divided on whether he is a good example to follow or not. But taken positively, I think what Nehemiah experiences is this sort of longing that Jerusalem would be better. And I think what he's really longing for is he's longing for the return of the Lord Jesus, isn't he? He's longing for the heavenly Jerusalem, recognizing that for all of his skill and wit and effort and commitment, he has not been able to do that. He is longing for what only Christ can achieve through his cross and resurrection. You know, he can rebuild the walls. He can pull out the hair of adulterers. He can threaten violence to Sabbath breakers. He can eject the temple squatters. But none of those things are ultimately going to achieve what Christ on the cross and the empty tomb can alone achieve, which is a resurrection Jerusalem, a resurrection kingdom, where sin and disappointments give way for perfection and glory. So here's the thing for us, I think. Disappointments in church life, and we will have those, are not only meant to humble us, but are meant to lead us to pray this with great passion and great commitment and great heartfelt feeling. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Don't delay. Come soon. Come now. Please, Lord Jesus. And I think that's where Nehemiah uh, ends his book, with that kind of plea uh, for us to echo. So let me pray as we close, and then we'll have a time of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we, we know that we live our lives in your hands and subject to your wisdom, and that in your divine providence and wisdom, in ways that we don't understand, for reasons that we don't understand, you have thought it best for us to spend our Christian lives growing and living together in imperfect churches that leave us longing for the return of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you might help us to send that disappointment that we feel, to help that to send us to pray, to turn to you, to recognize the weakness of our own hands and our need of you. And Lord, we want to pray with Nehemiah here 
that the Lord Jesus might return. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Lord, we long for that day. We, we know we cannot build heaven on earth, that actually we can't even really, in a right sense, build your kingdom here on earth. We are waiting for you to bring your kingdom here to earth. So please, Lord, keep us persevering, keep us loving one another, forgiving one another, helping one another. Keep us persevering, but please come soon and don't delay. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want us to have uh, a time of open prayer together, but before we do that, we're going to uh, sing behind.